You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, uh, good morning to you, the, uh, the few of you here uh, with us uh, to help us put together our service this morning and also to the a number of you uh, watching our live stream. Uh, there's no real way around it. This is just an odd experience. Uh, it's an odd moment that we live in. It's an odd time um, facing coronavirus, which there's a lot of unknowns with, and the information seems to change regularly. Uh, and so just wanted to, to begin this morning, before we move into our teaching time, just to, to address a little bit, uh, how should Christians respond in the face of something like COVID-19? If you're like me, every email list and company you've ever subscribed to sent you something this week about their response to to coronavirus. Uh, Everything from airlines and travel companies to my favorite was from Trogues, the brewery here in Hershey. Uh, Many others, sometimes you're like, I don't even know why I need to get one from Color Me Mine in Camp Hill, the, the plaster paint shop where my girls paint things, but they sent one too. Lest we be outdone, we've also sent you a number from Liberty Church. If you're on our email address, we want to make sure we're getting in on on the action as well. But how should Christians respond um, in moments like this one? When something like a viral pandemic breaks out, uh, as God's people in the world, we have in this moment both a great responsibility and a great opportunity. Uh, So it demonstrates love for our neighbors, and we'll talk about that specifically today from the Gospel of Mark. It demonstrates love for our neighbors and our world to practice this phrase you've been hearing often this week, social distancing. Uh, This is uh, what experts are saying is the the main way to stave off um, exponential growth and spread of of the virus. And as those who seek to live and speak and serve as the very presence of Jesus in our time and place, uh, we can't be unwise or imprudent or create unnecessary risks that jeopardize the health of people here in our congregation, uh, as well as in this community, and then in this state, and then this nation and and world. Uh, We don't want to overburden our healthcare system as well. Uh, You've heard a lot about flattening the curve and trying to not overburden uh, the healthcare system with too many cases too quickly. So we want to do that as well. At the same time, uh, living, speaking, and serving as the very presence of Jesus means that we actually must be present uh, that's, ne- that's necessary for us to find the right ways to be present. Throughout the history of the church, Christians are those who have displayed incredible courage and sacrifice and service and faith in the midst of pandemics, uh, in the midst of disasters and, and widespread fear. So COVID-19 is an opportunity for us as the people of God to demonstrate faith as his people in this time, in this place, for the good of the people that we live among. As we'll explore today in Mark chapter 12, uh, pursuing faithfulness to the greatest commandment, which is to love God and love our neighbor, uh, means that wisdom and prudence can't be the only considerations that we have. Uh, That love and compassion must also guide our decisions and our actions. Pastor and an author named Scott Sauls uh, so aptly, in my mind, put it this week. He said this, in a time like now, Christian neighboring looks less like fearful self-preservation and more like servanthood toward the elderly, toward those with HIV, toward those with autoimmune disease and no health care, toward those who are fatigued and under-resourced health care workers. 
And the way he summed it up was such a great line. He said this, wash hands for sure, then wash feet. Wash hands for sure, and then wash feet. So this morning and throughout these last several days, myself and our elders here, we felt deeply challenged by the responsibility and deeply encouraged by the opportunity. Uh, We desperately want to make uh, the wise and right decisions that serve this congregation and serve our region well. Uh, We also very much see this as a moment for the church to display rock-solid confidence in the one that we acknowledge as the rock of ages. Common sense, but also great courage and great compassion. Because weak and frail and mortal dust that we are, and we think about that in particular in the season of Lent where we remember our mortality, weak and frail dust that we are, we have something of the very glory of God in us. And we pray that our region and our world would see that and would be compelled to put their faith in Jesus like we do during these times. So we'll be continuing to update our website and sending out emails to you and our congregation with our response and deciding week by week what that needs to look like, continuing to to follow the developments as they unfold, uh, as all these unknowns begin to become more known about how the disease specifically spreads and how much of an issue it's going to be right here in central Pennsylvania. Um, We invite you just to stay tuned with us. uh, Be patient with us. Uh, We're asking you to trust our heart in this as well, which is to both see the the responsibility and the opportunity of this uh, to be present here in our region, but in the right kind of ways that demonstrate real love uh, for God and love for our neighbor. And this morning, uh, we're in a great place, just coincidentally. uh, Mark chapter 12, talking about the greatest commandment, among other things. So if you have Bibles, you can make your way to the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 13, and we're going to make our way all the way through verse 37 today. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and that you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Verse 18. The Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, Is, not, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. 
And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all, than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. Let us find our life in you. Banished from the Garden of Eden because of our rebellion, we long for the new city of paradise. O oh Lord, as we see in Mark's gospel, you are the Christ. Remember us in your kingdom. We come now to hear you speak of your love for us, for you alone have the words of eternal life. And so we pray this in your name. Amen. So I've titled this sermon, The Commanding One, because Jesus is commanding uh, in a couple senses. Uh, he commands, first and foremost, the attention of the Jewish leaders. Uh, now that he's in Jerusalem, they are fixated on discrediting him and destroying him. They fire off here a series of questions at Jesus in rapid succession in order to trap him, in order to discredit him in the eyes of the people or the Roman authorities or, or all of the above. But Jesus is also the commanding one in that during his response to one of these questions, he plainly clarifies the greatest commandments, which is to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And then finally, Jesus will offer a question of his own, demonstrating that he's been in command of this situation the entire time. So we're going to walk through this briefly uh, by briefly considering each of the four questions that we see in this text in Mark chapter 12. The political question, the theological question, the moral question, and then lastly, Jesus' own question, which is the identity question. So first, uh, the political question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And the trap being laid for Jesus here is this. Taxes paid to Rome were these painful reminders that the Jewish people were a conquered, subjugated group. So if Jesus here says, yes, pay taxes, that will immediately discredit him in the eyes of the masses. 
Uh, the Jewish people, as we saw, as, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, the Jewish people are beginning to look to him as the Messiah, the one who they think is going to bring them political freedom, political liberation from Rome. And so for Jesus to say yes to this question would be for, to, in their eyes, compromise his devotion to God and to accept the Roman rule over the Jewish people. And the Pharisees in particular are eager to catch him in saying something like that. On the other hand, to say no, to say don't pay taxes, well, that's now open rebellion and treason against Rome. And the Herodians, who are loyalists to Rome and their government, they would be eager to hear that and to turn him in for that. Either way, they're going to discredit him and they're going to get rid of Jesus because there's no good answer that he can give. Except the one that he does. Except the one that he does. Requesting a denarius, which is a coin, he asks, whose likeness is this? Caesar's. And so Jesus says, well then, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And the, the brilliance and the wisdom of Jesus in this answer. He says, the, well, the money belongs to Caesar. He's the one who, who put it into circulation. He's the one who uses it in his own ruling of this empire. So let him have it. But your whole life, not to mention the whole world, this belongs to God. And there's a great clue right in the middle of the words Jesus uses here. When he says, whose likeness is this? It points to the fundamental reality, the story of the world. Who are human beings? Who are human beings? Created by God, we are those who bear his image, his likeness. And so this coin, which bears the image of Caesar, that might belong to him. But he's saying to the people who are listening to him, Jesus is saying, you who bear the image of God, you belong to God. And this is such a needed paradigm in that day and in each and every, day, every age. That God has the ultimate claim on our lives. The prior claim, the most fundamental claim on our lives. That doesn't mean that we separate ourselves from our civic and political responsibilities and involvement. Uh, we're called to be present and to be engaged in the places that God has put us. But we must always keep perspective. We must always remember that our first allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And Jesus here is paving the path to the greatest commandment, which he's going to share in just a little while that we're to love God with everything we are, that we're to love others because they too bear the likeness of God. And so church, here this morning, you belong to God. You belong to God in life and in death, in body and soul. You belong to God. So render to God what is God's. When you consider the priorities and the allegiances of your life, before you wrestle with the specific questions about what you should or should not do in a given situation, look at yourself in the mirror. Look another human being directly in the eyes and ask, whose likeness is this? Whose likeness is this? Second, the theological question. If that's the political question, second, there's a theological question. And there are different groups among the Jewish leaders. Uh, if you are familiar with uh, scripture, you're familiar with the Bible, grew up in church, the one you're probably most familiar with are the Pharisees. Uh, and they're the most well-known because they have the most confrontations with Jesus. 
But another religious group among the Jewish leaders are the Sadducees. And they were the more theologically conservative group in that they only saw the Torah. They only saw the first five books of the Old Testament scriptures as authoritative. So it's actually a little crazy to think about this, but the Pharisees were the theologically progressive ones of their day. They were the theologically progressive ones. There's always a spectrum of fundamentalism and progressivism. There's always a spectrum. And specifically, the Sadducees, they rejected things like the existence of angels. And then relevant to this encounter with Jesus, they also rejected the idea that there would be a resurrection from the dead at the end of the age. So they posit this hypothetical scenario to Jesus. And for us to understand that, we first have to understand a practice known as leveret marriage. Leveret marriage, it's, it's actually laid out in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 25. But the practice is this, if, if a man died leaving his wife a widow, and particularly a widow without any children, then his brother was supposed to step in and marry her. And this was for, for a number of different reasons. It was to care for this woman who was in societally a very vulnerable place now. It was to preserve the name of the deceased man, to preserve the honor and memory of his life. And it was also to ensure that the land and the property that had been in that family would then remain within that family. And so the Sadducees say, what if a woman loses her husband and then proceeds to, to remarry and lose six more of his brothers? If in the resurrection, when they all rise from the dead, whose wife is she? Because she can't be married to all seven at the same time. And we might miss this because we don't have that practice of leveret marriage in our culture, but, but it's so thick, you could cut the smugness of this situation with a knife. Like, try to get around this one, Jesus. You believe in the resurrection? Try to get around this one. If the resurrection is true, how does leveret marriage work? Now, as we'll see, there's a difference between a sincere question and a trap. Jesus will respond to sincere questions graciously and straightforwardly. But as quickly as he will exalt the humble in their sincerity, he will humble the proud in their smugness. And so he responds to this group of Sadducees, you're wrong, you're wrong. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now that would be like saying to a doctor, you know nothing of medicine. It'd be like saying to a banker, you know nothing of finance. You experts in scriptures, you experts in the things of God, you know nothing about your area of expertise. And he goes on to explain, Jesus does, in the resurrection, people are not married like they are in this life. The apostles will write later in their letters, in their epistles, marriage points to the union, ultimately, of Jesus and his church, Jesus and his people for all eternity. So in the resurrection, when Jesus and his church are fully and finally united for the rest of time, then the shadow, the sign that marriage is, will give way to the substance of Jesus being with his people. Moreover, Jesus says, when God introduces himself to Moses all the way back in the book of Exodus at the burning bush, he speaks as though he is, present tense, still the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Not just that he was their God while they were still living on this earth, but that he remains their God presently. So one thing for us to take away from this encounter with the Sadducees, when it comes to the things of God, and to understanding the Bible and to understanding who God is and how he works in the world. 
you and I must constantly fight reductionism. We must constantly fight reductionism. That is the tendency that we have to emphasize one aspect or character of God or one part of Scripture over and against another. See, the Sadducees, their theological question here assumes that there is an irreconcilable contradiction between the Mosaic law about leveret marriage and belief in the resurrection from the dead. And because they can't understand logically how those two things could be compatible, their solution is to just do away with the resurrection. And then what's more, they then become arrogant and they mock how anyone could hold those two things together. And with different specifics, this kind of error has repeated itself over and over again in the centuries since. Uh, just two examples that come up often in my interactions with people and perhaps yours in our day. God is in complete control of everything. The scriptures plainly teach God has complete control over all things. And the scriptures plainly teach we as human beings have complete responsibility for our actions, including our rejection of God. How do those two things fit together? And then another one, God is, is love. He is the very definition and the essence of what love is. And we see in scripture, God is one who exercises wrath against sin. How are these things compatible? How are these things compatible? We've delved into these questions in much greater depth in other sermons. We're not going to do that this morning. Ultimately, we have some, some idea of how maybe they fit together, but ultimately we say we don't know. Logically, we don't know exactly how those things fit together. But think about this. How were leveret marriage and the resurrection compatible? There was an answer. And Jesus here reveals something previously unknown and unrevealed. So the reductionism of the Sadducees when they present this to him was a grievous error. And then they compounded that error in their arrogance and mockery. So friends, Carry your theological and doctrinal convictions confidently, but humbly. Sincere questions are right. They are good. Sincere questions are one thing. Smugness is something else entirely. And in the complex teachings of Scripture, which seem contradictory, which seem irreconcilable, fight the temptation always to be reductionistic. Smug reductionism is the thing here that is met with the rebuke of Jesus. You are quite wrong. Third, there's a moral question, a political question, a theological question, and then a moral question. Which commandment is the most important of all? And after a few traps, Jesus finally here receives a sincere question from a humble and teachable scribe. And just as we step back for a moment, thank God for this man and his sincerity and his questions. Because rather than a rebuke, rather than even a parable or an object lesson, which is harder to understand, what this man receives to, to, as a response to his sincere question, and what we receive by extension as those who get to read Mark's gospel, is a straightforward answer that brings immense clarity and direction to the life of faithfulness following God. What's most important? The most important commandment comes from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, named after the Hebrew word that means to hear. And it's this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. 
And then immediately, without being asked, Jesus adds a second commandment from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What do these commands mean? Well, in short, the first one means the, the totality of who you are expressing a totality of love for the one true God. God is one, there's one God, the totality of who you are, heart, mind, soul, and strength, in, a, in expressing a totality of love for that one true God. Everything that you and I have devoted fully to God. It's so, so much more than, than religious activity or the appearance of piety. We are meant to have the substance of real love for God. The second commandment, I think, was put really well by a pastor and author named John Piper. He wrote this. He says, It seems to demand that I tear the skin off of my body and wrap it around another person so that I feel I am that other person and that all the longings that I have for my own safety and health and success and happiness, I now feel for that other person as though he were me. So to love your neighbor as yourself means that this inherent affection and energy that we devote to ourselves, we now devote that same thing to our neighbor. And there's a lot of implications for this, including how we should respond to pandemics like the coronavirus. I'll come back to that actually as I wrap up my sermon in a little while. But first, let's see that these two commands, love God and love neighbor, go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. It's really impossible to pull the two apart from one another. As one scholar points out, holding these two things together helps us on the one hand avoid mysticism, which is like the overly spiritual, disembodied kind of pursuit of love for God. I love God, but I'm kind of aloof and distant from other people. And on the other hand, it helps us avoid humanism, which is a pursuit of care, a pursuit of charity and and good deeds and the well-being of other people, but devoid of any reference to God. So these two commands are inseparable, but also see there is a priority and a primacy to the first one. That love for God is then what will evidence itself in love for others. And then even more importantly, that it's actually love for God that establishes even the possibility that we can truly love other people. Because if not, what does love actually mean? And what does love actually look like? If not a reference to God, we don't really understand what love is because God is love. And we don't have time to delve into it this morning, but if you have time in the next couple days, and you might because we're all on lockdown and not going anywhere, I would encourage you to, to read 1 John chapter 4. It's a great text that brings these two things together, love for God and love for others. We love because he first loved us, loved us and we know what love is because of the love that he showed us in Jesus. Before we move to the last question, Also notice here how this encounter with the scribe ends. It's a sincere question, so Jesus answers it, and then he affirms this man and his understanding. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But even in this affirmation, it creates this moment of pause. Why is that? Because not far from the kingdom of God is still not the same as entering the kingdom of God. What's missing What's missing? Well, if these are the greatest commandments, and if by keeping the commandments we inherit eternal life, 
Jesus here commanding a totality of love for God and a completely selfless love for neighbor, it renders this scribe and it renders every single one of us who have ever set foot on this earth utterly incapable. I mean, how can we possibly keep these commands enough? Where's the line? When will we know that we have loved enough or sufficiently to inherit eternal life, to gain, to merit our salvation? So these are absolutely commands to follow. They're absolutely commands to follow. But if we are ever to enter the kingdom of God and not simply to remain near to it, in proximity to it, we must first and always look to Jesus' work and not our own. And that's what's missing from this scribe's understanding. And it's exactly why, having now answered so many of the Jewish leaders' questions, that Jesus turns around and offers one of his own. So fourth and finally, let's look at Jesus' question, which is the identity question. Psalm 110 uh, is, the, is, is a part of the Old Testament most often quoted in the New Testament. It's not one that we think of necessarily, and it might be quoted often. It's quoted a ton in the New Testament. It's in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke. It's in the first recorded sermon from the Christian church. After Jesus ascends to heaven, Peter preaches a sermon at Pentecost. It's in that sermon in Acts 2. It's in 1 Corinthians. It's in Hebrews. And Psalm 110 is quoted so often in the New Testament because Jesus here in Mark 12 employs it to reveal his identity, to challenge the assumptions of the Jewish leaders. In the temple, in the midst of these leaders who have been confronting him, Jesus turns around and asks them, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And this, of course, was the prevailing view, that the Christ, the anointed Messiah, the one who would come to save and to rescue the people of God, would come from David's family, David's line. And there are a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament that teach that. And actually, that's true. It's just as we find out here, it's incomplete. It's not the whole story. So Jesus continues, David himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit as he was writing Psalm 110, David declares, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. In other words, the Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand. And the question, of course, is this. Who is this person? Who is this? Who is David's Lord? David was the king of Israel. He was the epitome of a true king over the people of God. He was a man, we read in scripture, after God's own heart. So who besides Yahweh, who besides God the Father, would David refer to as Lord? Only God the Son, only Jesus. Fully God and fully man. David's son and David's Lord. And using this moment to reveal that, Jesus demonstrates that he's been in complete control of this situation the entire time. He is the commanding one. He actually has the right to declare the greatest commandments to clarify what those are because he is Lord, because he is the king of kings. And in calling people to love God and to love their neighbor, Jesus is about, is about to embark on the ultimate display of both. Jesus, especially we get the sense of urgency in Mark's gospel, he is racing to the cross. 
what does love for God, what does love for other people look like? It looks like, most ultimately, Jesus on the cross. As we read even today in our words of encouragement, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. By his love, Jesus not only observes the greatest commandments perfectly, he purchases the salvation of our failed attempts, of our failed obedience, of our failed efforts, what we never could. He makes it possible for us not just to get near to the kingdom of God by following his example. He makes it possible for you and I to enter the kingdom of God by trusting in his own finished work, in his own act of love for us. As Anselm of Canterbury once put it, the debt of sin was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it so that the same person must be both man and God. In short, we might say it this way, only man should, only God could, and only Jesus did. The human son of David, the divine Lord of David is one and the same Jesus Christ. So friends, take heart. Take heart because in moments when it seems like Jesus is on his heels being peppered by questions from other people, he is anything but. He is just as much in command as ever. He is just as unshaken in his identity and his purposes, which are then what give meaning and purpose and shape to ours. Now that's true when there's an all-out assault on his reputation and character as it is here in the first century. That's true when people seek to discredit him in our day. That's true in the midst of miserable, tragic circumstances. That's true when coronaviruses spread rampantly around the world and we don't really even know what's going on or what that's going to look like. In fact, it's the love of Jesus and the command of Jesus that transform moments like these into incredible opportunities to follow him into a life of present, courageous, sacrificial love and care and service for other people. So let me close just with some practical words about what it, what it means to love God and to love our neighbor in the midst of COVID-19. First, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We constantly in our lives, I know I do this and I'm sure that you do the same in some way, we crowd love for God, uh, deep communion with Jesus. We crowd that out of our lives through busyness, through activity. And so the opportunity in the midst of something like coronavirus is that now so many things are shut down for you. It's forced upon you. Schools are closed. A lot of offices are closed. Stores will probably close more and more in the next days. Social activities grind to a minimum or to a complete halt. And that makes this a great moment to ask yourself, what's really essential? What's really essential? There's a well-known interaction between Jesus and Martha in Luke 10, where Martha has made herself busy with a whole flurry of activity that she considers to be essential. And Jesus says to her in that moment that actually her sister Mary has chosen the better portion. Mary has chosen the one necessary thing, which is to sit at the feet of Jesus, which is to be with him, to commune with him. And so when it seems like the whole world has shut down this week and in the weeks to come, allow that to reset your priorities and the rhythms of your life. 
when so much of our supposed indispensable stuff isn't there for us, reset your life around the one necessary thing. Love the Lord your God with everything you are. Everything you are. And love your neighbor as yourself. Social distancing has its place. Wisdom and prudence is absolutely right. It's part of loving our neighbor. But there are all kinds of examples in history where Christians have then done things that seem unwise and seem imprudent in order to sacrificially love and serve their neighbors. And so, yes, be prudent, be cautious, be wise. Don't let those things be your only considerations. Let all that you do be done in love. And that works itself out in a couple ways. Love your neighbor, Jesus says, as yourself. And you probably already have, in the last couple days, taken some preventative, cautious measures. You've probably done some extra cleaning in your house. You've probably bought some extra food. Well, if that's what it looks like for you to naturally care for yourself, to love and protect yourself, how can you then love other people by helping them do the same thing? In addition... Though social distancing is part of loving our neighbor, we should work really hard to be present with other people to avoid isolation completely and find the right and wise ways to do that. To remain with other people even more than ever as a presence of comfort and peace in the midst of rampant fear and rampant anxiety. So a few specific ideas, and we've been collaborating with the deacons about some of this. Well, you'll hear more about that in days to come. But as school is now canceled, Kids who depend on free and reduced lunches through their school will need food. So check with your local school administration, see how you can help them. There probably will also be kids who need childcare if mom and dad are still going into work and they don't have a solution to get their kids some childcare for these weeks when school is out. Check on uh, neighbors of yours that are at risk, particularly those who have uh, medical conditions or those who are older. Uh, make sure they're doing okay. Make sure they have what they need. Offer to call them or email them to check in regularly. Offer to do shopping trips on their behalf for essential things if they're not able to do that themselves. College students is another one. Uh, as of Friday, international students were still allowed to live on campus at Messiah College and a few other colleges in the area. Uh, but if that changes, if they're no longer allowed to live on campus, and then in addition with the travel bans that we're experiencing, they'll probably need a place to live for a couple weeks. So if you have a spare bedroom, be ready, be, be willing to offer it to someone who has a need for that. Another one, if you're able and healthy, keep serving at places like New Hope Ministries. As of the end of this week, New Hope is remaining open in order to serve people who depend upon them and the food that they provide. They're actually anticipating that even more people are going to need their services in the coming weeks. Uh, and so continue serving there as long as you're able to. And if you don't currently serve there, and if you're able to do that even temporarily to jump in and cover for some people who will wisely need to take a season away, do that. You know we're in the middle of Easter outreach. Uh, we're giving money to, to build clean water wells in South Sudan. We're also giving out gifts of $100 to people in our church to bless and serve others. Pray and keep thinking about the way that coronavirus now opens a new host of opportunities to participate in Easter outreach, to serve and care for and bless people in celebration of Jesus' resurrection. And then lastly, step into and be part of God's providence and God's sustaining in, of the world by, within reason and with wisdom, continuing to live your life as much as you can. 
We don't tend to think about this side of it as much, but there will be people, because of the, the economic impact of the virus, who, who lose their jobs, particularly hourly employees who are getting laid off. When everything shuts down, there's a huge impact. A lot of people are going to be impacted by that. So while being prudent, keep living your life as much as you can. In 1948, the world was in this moment of panic about the atomic bomb, which was a newer invention at the time. And C.S. Lewis, famous author and scholar, he wrote this in 1948. If we are going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint in a game of darts. You can choose soda if you are offended by the pint piece of that. Uh, not, he says, not C.S. Lewis says, huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. He goes on to say, they may break our bodies, they need not dominate our minds. I'll be the first to admit, bombs are not the same thing as viruses. We have responsibility to stop the spread of this like we wouldn't even have the chance with something like an atomic bomb. That said, the point remains, we can also love our neighbor by being present in still wise ways and, see, and still living our life as much as we can. So friends, Jesus Christ is the commanding one. Son of man, son of God, son of David, Lord of David. And even when it seems like he is on his heels, he is not. As he has commanded us, let us love God with the totality of who we are. Let us love our neighbor as ourselves. And in faith, let us look to him and his own saving sacrificial love that we might enter the kingdom of God and then follow his commands. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God of love, as in Jesus Christ, you have given yourself to us. So may we give ourselves to you, living according to your holy will, doing what you command. Keep our feet firmly in the way where Christ leads us. Make our mouths speak the truth that Christ teaches us. Fill our bodies with the life that is Christ within us. And it's in his holy name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.